Hey, everybody. Welcome to HMH's Future of Transportation podcast. I'm John Halpin, and on this show, as I hope you know already, we host a regular series of chats with experts in the transportation industry. Joining me today is Minsu Pak, who is a certified futurist. Minsu, first, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate you doing this with me today. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. All right. Can you, for those who might not know, can you explain what a futurist does? So being a futurist is really nothing more than a fancy title for somebody who's learned how to deconstruct the components of what might happen. And I think it's the important part is what might happen and what are the scenarios that could uh, arise and how do we make sense of it? And that's all that is. Okay. So, I mean, we talk about the future of transportation on this podcast on lots of different topics. Um, so every day you're examining the future of it. Do you focus mostly on transportation or are just kind of a whole host of things? Uh, across a big, broad range of, of topics, sectors and industries. OK, so um, I, I want to start getting into topics. You know, it's funny. La la in the last episode of this, we talked to an electric, an electric vehicle person. So it was a pretty focused topic. This one's going to be a little more. I don't want to say all over the place, but we've got a lot of ground to cover because there's a lot of things we're curious about and, and that you can share insight on. Um, speaking of electric vehicles, you know, we talk about that uh, until this year. A lot of us have talked about that as sort of being a futuristic kind of thing. Now they're kind of here. And I guess in your business, you're past that a little bit, right? I mean, you know, you're, you're focusing on the next step from from electric vehicles. What's downstream from electric vehicles? Like what does the the mainstream acceptance and adoption or soon to be mainstream acceptance and adoption of electric vehicles mean for other businesses? What do what does that mean if 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 you know GM sells all the electric vehicles they want to sell by 2030 like they're talking about, what else gets affected? Yeah, I I think you know part of being a futurist is looking at downstream implications of everything. And there's sort of two levels of thinking. One is what is the stimulus, in this case, EVs, but what are the downstream implications of EVs? And I think part of that is this global um, climate crisis and what we're going to do collectively to address that. And I think that, you know, part of an equation, again, certainly not all of it, but part of the equation um, is moving to more sustainable fuels. And, you know, I actually had a really wonderful thought that one of uh, the things that I've read is where battery electric vehicles are renewable energy sources. They actually categorized um, petrol or gasoline as a single use energy source, which I thought was very, very interesting. And I think mm -hmm. if we're moving towards renewable use uh, propulsion, vehicles, that becomes very, very interesting. Now, battery electric vehicles, while uh, the topic du jour, is not the sum total of what might happen. There are lots of people betting on hydrogen and what that might do, particularly to fleet vehicles or very large, you know, uh, heavy industry vehicles. And, you know, you, you have people like Porsche who um, so love the internal combustion engine that they're looking to create their own completely synthetic, um, zero carbon emitting uh, fuel itself. So there are still many, many innovations yet to come. 
So uh, you talked about betting on different things. Of those three that you just named, which one would you bet on based on what you know now? Well, I think, you know, right now, battery electric vehicles are certainly the preeminent thing that's happening. All the manufacturers have said that they're going down that path and, you know, really um, stopping internal combustion engine production uh, after 20, 30, 35, uh, depending on the manufacturer. So they're, they're all in on that. And I think, but when you start to think about what battery electric vehicles mean, it means a whole lot of charging infrastructure. It means new payment methods and new uh, faster high-speed charging networks. That starts to imply, you know, humongous loads now being uh, imposed upon our already existing electricity grid infrastructure. And all of those things need to be thought through in total before we can effectively make this shift. And then, you know, what do we do as EVs become the propulsion? There's also simultaneously this uh, movement towards AVs from an autonomous vehicle standpoint, which then starts to open up the door to a Pandora's box of a whole bunch of things. If you're not driving, what are you doing in the vehicle when you're not driving? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you talked about how uh, the, the added load uh, on the infrastructure needs to be thought through. Uh, my next question was going to be about cities and utility companies that are they ready? Because when you said they need to be thought through, I'm kind of the first thing that came to my head just then was it's here. I don't know if there's that they can't think through anymore. They have to be ready, don't they? Did, I mean, for electric vehicles, are, are, aren't they close to needing to be just ready to roll? I, I think they are. They're they're it's written on the wall, certainly. The writing's on the wall. They got to be ready. Um, I think, you, but one does not just rock up and install five 900 volt chargers and and say job done. That that to the electrical grid uh, effectively looks like you just added five houses. <laughs> you know, okay. effectively. So uh, you you know, it depends on when and where. Uh, in areas where the grid infrastructure might be a little creaky that poses a big problem. Um, in other areas, maybe less so. But the idea around being able to be very, very thoughtful, not only about what you're doing, but all of the, again, the downstream implications of all of these other uh, you know, ancillary sectors that have to reflect that, completely needs to be thought through and partnerships need to be made. So one more thing with the utility companies. So so does does the added load on them for this, does it replace something else they have or does it add to something they have? I think it adds because, you know, part of their their load balancing, you know, this is part of the the weird um, instance with power companies who are focused on helping you use energy more effectively. And in the past, it was the taxi model. I have a meter on your house or your business, and I charge you for how quickly you spend that meter, and then that was the sum total of it. But now, because standing up new power sources are very expensive, there's a lot of legislation involved, they actually want you to um, manage the peak power versus the, the you know, in the middle of the night kind of uh, power, and better management is going to be critical. You're also going to have all these other industries that are wanting to play in what is called distributed energy resource management. Um, 
where everything that's connected to your house and plugged into a wall potentially could have a part to play in that. So there's a whole uh, ecosystem of effective use of power that's probably going to come online. And then, you know, when you start to talk about charging subsystems and especially with autonomous vehicles, there's a lot of legislation and a lot of um, normalization that needs to happen. You can't just have a Mercedes and say that it doesn't work in Charlotte because my AV system is incompatible with the city structure of Charlotte. That doesn't work. So how do we get to a point where, you know, as we start to think about cities and smart cities in particular, and all of these power players, how do we create an ecosystem that allows all of those things to work well together, but also interoperate seamlessly? Okay, so there's a lot of getting up to speed in what you just talked about. Um, the one last question on EVs I wanted to ask was, however many years ago when the, when the gasoline-powered car uh, became popular, it was a positive, right? It was a, wow, this is great. We can all get around. This, this is fantastic. And now we see, while there was a net positive for sure, there is an impact on the environment, right? For instance, are there any potential negative impacts to electric vehicle adoption that could be somewhat similar? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think with every positive, there are, you know, the considerations of at what cost, right? So part of the, the battery electric vehicle equation is what do you do with the batteries when they've um, expended their useful life? And so, you know, batteries are, are heavily resource intensive. They're... Mm -hmm. um, full of precious minerals and, and you know, if you look at the chip shortage, there's a lot of dependency uh, related to that. And, and the other part of the equation is, you know, to get the electricity that eventually powers those things, how is that energy uh, derived? Is it solar? Is it wind? Is it coal? Is it nuclear? All of those, the, the generation side is also really important if we look at it in total. And so while battery electric vehicles as one uh, link on the chain might be better. It really doesn't solve the full equation until we take into account the entire uh, ecosystem around it. Okay. So you referenced autonomous vehicles a couple of times. I want to shift to that. Um, so the technology's getting closer. It's here, really. Um, it probably needs some tweaks and refinements, but it's basically here. How long do you think it's going to take for us to accept it? Like I, I, when I think about autonomous vehicles, I think, um, you know, we have some clients in that business. And, and I think, well, if there's one accident throws the whole thing, upends the whole apple cart there, you know, because people, people I, I wonder how many have a, a mental block about, you know, the computer is not a better driver than I am, um, which it probably will, it will be. But, but how long will the acceptance take and, and will small roadblocks bo become big ones to accepting autonomous vehicles? Well, and that's, it's a really great question. I think one of the things is it's all subject to media hype, right? So mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many auto accidents uh, happen within, let alone one day, one hour across the United States right. that are human error and driven by somebody not paying attention, playing with their cell phone, um, you know, spilling coffee in their lap, whatever the human error is, there, there's probably quite a lot. 
and then you have one autonomous vehicle failure and the whole world erupts. So I think eventually it's systemic. So one of the things that uh, uh, autonomous vehicles are dependent on is um, going to be very much not singular, meaning one vehicle being a computer-aided autonomous operating independently. When you start to think about it as a bunch of vehicles operating autonomously and talking to each other as well as processing what's happening in the environment you have an infinitely more uh, fault tolerant and fault uh, avoiding network of sorts and you know at that point the radical element or the unpredictable element is the human driver and so uh, we have to think about it you know a avoiding the media hype but also B, thinking about it on a more systemic level of what we can do to help um, autonomous vehicles work better, you know, as an ecosystem, not as singular one-offs. Okay. So you talked about the cars talking, vehicles talking to each other. Um, I know I've read a little about this. That, that kind of lends itself to, you know, I, I think a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you is what industries get affected by X? Cybersecurity, right? There's certainly opportunity there because... People are one of the worries about autonomous vehicles is is hackers and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, part of my my favorite quotes is is a Marshall McLuhan quote. Where, you know, the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed yet. And so, to your earlier point, autonomous vehicles very much already here. Anyone with a latest generation Tesla can tell you that for most situations, it works rather well. Um, but to when you start to think about um, what's next and um, what's coming down the pike, yeah, absolutely. The, the autonomous vehicle networks, the support industries that are going to be uh, required to do that, and, and the infrastructure with cities and smart cities, all are going to have their part to play in, in delivering uh, whatever that eventual future is going to be. Okay, so when we... Uh... We actually chatted yesterday for the first time, and um, you mentioned something about autonomous vehicle. I'm going to get the quote from you. Autonomous vehicles revitalizing street-level commerce. Can you explain what you mean by that and what, what that impact means? Sure. And this is actually uh, something that was shared in several CESs ago by um, the, the chairman uh, of Ford. You know, part of the electrification uh, and, and really the autonomous vehicle world is going to be the possibly uh, the rebirth of street level commerce because as i look at it the movement away from street level commerce happened because of accommodations made for the car and so that what do you do with your car i want to shop on that that street corner shop but i have no place to park my car because mm -hmm. there's only a limited number of parking spots available in city centers, they're not even uh, um, open to be parked in. You have a lot of regulations around that, and there's a limited capacity. And so in a world where you know, it's battery electric or largely autonomous, there's uh, multiple scenarios. One may be that you just get out of your car and the car drives circles around the block until you're ready to go back in or it finds itself a charging station and automatically parks itself, charges while it waits for you, and then you summon it and it comes pick you up. Or interestingly enough, it actually makes you money. Like it goes and shuttles 
other drivers around <laughs> and and acts as an autonomous Uber and you get maybe the funds for that. Um, and so there are a whole bunch of new business models and new operating models that might get birth from uh, you know these these autonomous strategies. Um, so I'm thinking about you mentioned Tesla, um, and, and Tesla's kind of Tesla's a cool car right now. You know, it's like people look at it and they go, "Hey, I'd love to get one of those." That's that's just sort of the hot thing at the moment. If if you have an autonomous car, like a lot of car companies market based on how fun a car is to drive. If you're not driving, does that make car? I mean, my my gut tells me, does that make cars just more just utilitarian? Do you care what kind of car you're in based on that? Or do you still care even if, you know, like you said, we're not sure exactly what we're doing in the car uh, as we're not driving it? It's, again, a, a brilliant question. And as a car person, my answer going in is always, yes, the car matters. <laughs> um, because at, at some point, you're going to want to drive yourself. Um, I, I don't think there's going to be a, a world where nobody drives anymore ever. I think there are multiple uh, avenues. One is that perhaps the uh, petrol car or the gasoline car becomes the vinyl record of the automotive world, where you know you you want a V12 and makes beautiful sounds and you know it, it uh, is thrilling to drive in kind of a, a different way. Um, you already know that maybe it's it's it has clicks and pops. It requires more maintenance. It's not quite as high fidelity, but you like it anyway, because human beings don't make a whole lot of sense at the end of the day. Um, but I think there's no no avoiding that for what we call commuting, which by the way, I, I dissociate from driving. If you're driving and commuting, it's usually a an endurance exercise. You're really just <laughs> kind of grinning and bearing it. Hallelujah, yes. I would gladly turn that over to a machine if the, I could do work, take calls, watch a movie, relax, maybe catch a little extra Z's in the car because I, I feel confident enough in, in the safety that it allowed me to do those things. Absolutely. And so, you know, again, part of the, the thing about being a futurist is not looking at just one conceivable future, but looking at multiple conceivable features. And you know, what role would I have? What role would your clients have? What role would the people that I know play within that you know, ecosystem and, and what might happen? And so I think you have to plan for any and all of those scenarios because by and large, one of those um, are probably gonna impact your life and possibly all of them. As a native New Yorker, I totally hear you about having extra time when you commute to read and sleep and things like that. I, I miss that a little bit. So let's talk more about, yeah, right? It's different. Um, let's talk more about commuting. So COVID has changed commuting in, in a way that it's not going to turn all the way back because f there's going to be fewer people commuting to offices and things like that. Um, what are those, you talked about multiple futures and one of them being a a, an autonomous vehicle helping, you know, commuting be less drudgery. What are the other possible futures of commuting? You know, that, that basically if we're talking transportation, that's what we're talking about here. What, what other possibilities are there? Well, and I think that COVID has really unlocked 
um, a lot of creativity, frankly, and across many, many industries. And I think it's um, on the most basic level called into question what is required, what is mm -hmm. really required. You know, there, it's the it's the death of I go to the office because that's what I do to where I go to work. We all kind of learn that that's not entirely true. But the the return to work, there are some really incredibly positive things about being at a, a work location, teaming, face-to-face -face meetings, all of those things. Some things are just easier to solve quickly and more comprehensively together in a group. I say that as I sit in, in an office today, not, not my home office, but my actual, an actual office um, that I've started to do two days a week. And so one of the things that starts to unlock is what are the other business models? What are the other use cases that um, are going to be downstream implications of what we've learned during COVID? And I think part of that is the intentionality of why we gather is going mm -hmm. to be really, really important. The, the because we've always done it this way, which by the way, are my, my least favorite and scariest <laughs> words in all of the human language. Um, I think that's out the window. So being very intentional about why we might want to gather is gonna play a huge part. And then, um, you know, clearly focused work or writing work or, or things where you need a lot of attention and focused attention, um, that's probably going to be uh, very much the way that we've experienced um, you know, working at home or working whatever location singularly. And so I think a lot of thinking on a lot of different people have gone on the return to work and what does that, what does that mean? But I think that, that um, the shaping of that is going to drive a lot of different human behavioral changes, but also business and operational changes as well. Okay. So one way people commute, uh, I mentioned being a native New Yorker, is by train. Um, President Biden talked last week about this week, I think it was this week about modernizing the rail system. And, you know, wouldn't it, I think one of the quotes was, wouldn't it be great if you could get from, I'm in Charlotte. Hey, if you could get from Charlotte to Atlanta in two hours, wouldn't that be great? And I heard that. I went, eh, I mean, that's, that's catching up to where some other places are. What would be like, one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, can, would I be able to commute to work if I had to? 400 miles, you know, and what's it going to take to do that? And, and I know that, you know, I mean, hi, when we talked yesterday, we talked about Hyperloop a little bit. Do you think that's a, is, is that a looming factor that that's going to become bigger than maybe some people think? Absolutely. I think part of the, the modernization, if you will, or looking at the future of trains and commuting in high speed in groups, um, we have to think about regional travel and what that means. And right now, you, you have a very va uh, vast gulf between a regional air travel, which is you know, within an hour, and, and, but really it's not, it's an hour of flight time, but it's an hour on both ends. So it yeah. becomes in total very close to what you're driving anyway. Um, so that's, not, that's a false narrative. But if you were to actually have not a high-speed train because that already exists, but if you had a hyperloop that allowed you to do that in 20 minutes or less, mm -hmm. um, you you start to think about well, wow, okay, that unlocks the ability for people to live 
in one city and work in another, which redistributes population growth. It allows you to start thinking about what you would do around space and real estate differently because hyperloops take above, you know, above ground dedicated, you know, real estate. You can't necessarily have, you know, a, a car crossing or a chicken crossing or, or <laughs> right. cows in in a field next to a hyperloop, which you know could be moving in a in a vacuum tube at 4,000 miles an hour. So. Um, you know, it real it really starts to unlock what are the other considerations that would have to happen, and what are the industries that would pop up on both ends of a hyperloop, and what what would that need to look like? Uh, because then now you're starting to talk about a completely different level of of transport, and it actually um, really recalls a conversation I had with a, a major airline that was my client at the time. When I when I asked them very provocatively, would you be able to survive if all regional air travel just went away? Because that's what people are trying to trying to take on now. Right. Well, I actually read something a couple of weeks ago that in I think in Germany and in France too, they're literally trying to discourage people from domestic air travel and encouraging them to take the train instead for sustainability reasons. Right. So. Um, yeah, it'd be nice to, if we, if we had rail that really worked quickly, like you said, that, you know, when we talk about going to Atlanta, I go, well, we might as well drive because even though it's an hour flight, like you said, I have to leave the house two hours before the flight leaves and all that. So yeah, um, rail like that would be great. Current U.S. is an Excella, which might hit 80 or, or 90 miles an hour. Um, the KTX in South Korea or the bullet train in Japan are routinely 220, 240. Uh, miles an hour, and that's right. current. So you know, we'll, if you can imagine um, exponentially from there, where there's no aerodynamics and you can control a vacuum tube and you can go 4,000 miles per hour, um, that is a significant step on. And you know, that might be the most sustainable uh, method to transport lot, large groups of people. Which, frankly, that would be. Uh, another exponential mind-blowing uh, advancement. All right. We haven't talked about, so I'm just going to, I don't want to just leave a big open-ended thing here, but we haven't talked about artificial intelligence. Without getting into another 30-minute conversation, where, where does that, I mean, with the autonomous vehicles that factors in, how, how does that factor otherwise into like, is, is there sort of a natural, oh, here's the biggest way it impacts transportation. I know this could go, I, I don't want to just give you a vague topic, but but how does that factor into the, this transportation conversa conversation and, and succinctly, how about that? Well, I, I think artificial intelligence plays a large part into things like traffic and the management of traffic. Um, but really, when I think about artificial intelligence, it actually is a misnomer. It's intelligent automation, really, mm -hmm. is probably um, more of what that is really being done. But I think the the part that's um, the biggest value proposition is the is the ML or machine learning part of it, which is every time I do this, this is what happens. I can avoid that because I'm going to learn. The, the algorithm learns to avoid that thing altogether. And that's machine learning. And it's actually the component part of AI that we all think is sexy and dangerous, <laughs> is, right. is the 
the machine learns uh, about that and then starts to accommodate uh, around it or solves for that problem without human intervention. And that's when we start getting into um, what we really would call uh, AI. So I'm a, in transportation marketing, as you know, of all the things we've talked about or uh, maybe something I haven't, what do I need to, what do I need to focus on? If you had to tell me, John, I, I think this industry is your sweet spot. I, I, I think this is what you should learn as much as you can about right away to get ahead of, of your competition. Is there an answer to that? Is there one good answer to that that sticks out above others for you? Um, I, I think part of it is is actually less about the thing to think about and more about the way you need to think about it, if that makes any sense. And I think part of the, the idea of being a futurist is not so much that you, you can predict the future because that's not true. What, right. what it is, is a structured way to think about scenario planning. And there's a, if you look at it in, in this way, if I can pre-plan three whole scenarios that I think might happen. And I actually then put le listening uh, and trend watching and um, you know research between today, now, and that conceptual then. I would probably feel a lot better about the future if I had multiple scenarios already created and I could start to interpret the things that are happening on a day-to-day -day basis to start to think, oh, it looks like much more like future A rather than B or C. That's interesting. If I want future A, if that's something that's good for me, then maybe I, I, I kind of help that along. Or if it's not a future that I like, maybe I start to put stimulus in to steer it more towards future B because that is something that I like. And the two component parts of that is one, which is the, uh, the creation of those scenarios. One tool we use is a very wonderful acronym called STEEP, which is Society, Technology, Environment, Economics, and Politics. Those are the factors you would have to consider to create a cogent world or a scenario. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is, is an adage that you can't predict the future, but you can map it and you can build it. And so, that brings to bear the, the cone of possibilities, what's called a cone of possibilities. If you look at what's possible, it's really not very useful because you, John, you could say, I could say, neither of us could have enough data to refute or deny um, anything that we say. And frankly, if in, even in our lifetimes, we have seen miracles happen. No one mm -hmm. would have predicted that we would walk around with 100,000 times the amount of computing power that put men on the moon um, and take it for granted in our, in our pockets and that we, we complain about battery life of a supercomputer <laughs> that has untold processing capabilities. We've seen enough miracles happen even in our lifetime to say that what's possible is not really relevant. However, if you can, you, can collapse that a little bit and look at the plausible future, it's very interesting. That's not yet explored. Those are the, the area where maybe weak signals of that future exist in the market, but it's the, it's the, um, the reaction is, huh, I've never really thought about that. That might happen. 
that that's a plausible future. If you half that again, there's the probable, and that's the third P, which is it's called the trend. Somebody's already working on it. The, uh, the uh, there's startups created just to address that. The fourth P, which everyone forgets, um, is the the preferable future. What do you want to have happen? And that matters because if you can't articulate what you want to have happen, how on earth would you know if you get there? <laughs> and, then, and then if you have a preferable future, you can then say, oh, okay, scenario A is my preferable future, but things are looking at scenario B. So maybe I need to put stimulus in place to help drive it back to scenario A, or um, how do I put more value propositions or a way for myself to win in the way that things are already going? Because the, the next big thing, the future, doesn't simply happen to you. It happens because you make it happen. And I think that that's something that it's really important for all of us to really keep in mind that we have a lot of, uh, of input into this future that can happen. All right. So last one on this, you said a minute ago, you know, it, the before the plausible, I think it was that you said something that makes you go, oh, I never thought about something like that. Is there anything recently that has made you think like, is there something that's made you think that recently, like said, this could be the next mobile phone? Like this is like something you, you probably get less surprised than I do about innovations, technologies, products. Is there something recently that has surprised you and, and sort of whether it's taken your breath away or made you think, wow, this is really a game changer? Yeah, there, there are a lot of stuff that I see. I think one, one I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. One, one is the backlash um, around pri private uh, information, PII, personal identifi identifiable information, because in a world where, you know, your, your face actually unlocks your phone, could actually pay for things, um, in, a, in a world where that level of convenience is offered to you. I think the adoption for that is hit several stumbling blocks because of one thing and one thing I think that, that really has surprised me, which is how little people actually put behind the idea and the concept of trust. Because mm -hmm. in the future, you're really only going to allow full bi-directional data access for you as a person with, with brands and companies that you inherently trust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Apple has, has made it very public that they value that above all. And, you know, you witness some of the stuff that's been in the news. They won't crack their own devices for anyone, including the government. Right. And that level of trust around your data um, frankly, is 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 next level for for even someone like myself. So there there's a element to that that I think is really really uh, powerful. That that has actually surprised me is how little others put behind this incredibly uh, important aspect of trust. And, and I think that that's probably been the biggest aha moment for me is that 
Some people are starting to build the fundamentals of that really, really well, while mm -hmm. others uh, have yet to even recognize it. Got it. All right. So we're about at time. I was going to do a lightning round for you, but honestly, you've answered most of those questions already. I, I will say that my colleagues, I asked my colleagues for questions and I got a lot about teleportation and jetpacks when they knew I was going to talk to you. But um, jet, can people do jetpacks on vacation already? Yeah, jetpacks are already here. Right. How far can I go on a jetpack? Can I just go over a lake on a vacation or can I actually go somewhere with it? Well, it depends on if, you, if you're willing to get burned or not or, you know, how high... <laughs> you're willing to go to take the risk. I think all of those things are certainly not without risk. And there, there's a little bit of Chuck Yeager required to be able to, yeah. to, to do these things. Um, but they're already here. And, you know, teleportation, I think, is probably one of the biggest um, question marks, because it's not something that's fault tolerant. You don't want to reassemble somebody and have their arm where their eye is, and that wouldn't work. Um, <laughs> so, so being able to do that. But that said, you know, um, people are working on it. Really? Like seriously working on it? Seriously working on it, because you can just imagine what, what that would unlock. Um, I think one of the things, there are two things that I think are incredibly interesting right now. One is this neural link that um, Elon Musk is working on um, that I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for last. But the, this idea of, you know, being able to make things, the, this idea that maybe 3D printing will be the inkjet printer of or the laser jet printer of the this coming age, where I could conceivably uh, send to you my design so that you can make it um, for yourself in your house, the way that you would print a document that I could send you. Absolutely possible. To, you know, there are uh, 3D printers now that do multi-substrates and could actually output an entire running shoe, uh, changing the materials along the way. Mm -hmm. Printing things in five-axis milling machines where you can create shapes in, in cars or in, in uh, uh, devices that have never been ha had before. So those are all things, again, not evenly distributed, but out there. The, neural, the thing that struck me about the neural link and being able to connect our brains in a hardwired way to other things is that when, it's, when you hear it working, those of us who are of a certain age and can remember the 56K baud modem, right? It's, it sounds exactly like that, which I find wow. incredible. Like our brains, when we process and we, we can map this, the sounds, we give it sounds, it sounds eerily like a 56K baud modem. And what that will do to things, woo, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big, big question mark. So the 3D printer, so the company that makes the electric scooter could make the cup holder for the electric scooter on its own, right? Something like that. Like there's so, so there's basically you, you can, this, maybe that means less outsourcing to, uh, I don't know. Uh, that just got me thinking a little bit that, you know, you could do more in-house on accessories and things like that, no matter what business you're in. Or, or cottage industries, you know, yeah. that. John, I like your design for the scooter. Can I just give you $200 and you send me the file and I 
I printed out at my house. Yeah. Um, you know, is there a manufacturer involved or do we have hardware that's componentized and we create the form to house it? You know, there's a lot of different, these are incredibly foreign concepts because still right now we think of a product as a product in total designed, you know, executed and delivered and packaged in one complete vertically integrated exercise where maybe that isn't the, the product of the future. Maybe the product of the future comes with no packaging because it's sustainable. Maybe it's actually um, the guts of it are one thing, the form of it is another thing, and the making of it is yet another thing altogether. It, 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 could, it could easily go that way, and why not? That would unlock an entire new cottage industry of creative people and craftspeople um, who could create new forms and, and um, really take on an, another life of uh, what we call manufacturing. All right. You know, I could go on and on and on, but I'm going to let you go and we're going to wrap this up. Um, can people find you on social media? Communicate with you that way? Absolutely. So if you um, look on LinkedIn, you just look up my name and that'll probably be the best best way to get a hold of me. Okay. Um, and so I, I really appreciate your time and your insight. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for doing it. Absolutely. Pleasure, John. All right, everybody. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're watching or listening. It'll help us get the word out and we would really appreciate it. Uh, to learn more about HMH, the Transportation Transformation Agency, visit hmhagency.com or find us on all the usual social media platforms. For Minsu Pak, I'm John Halpin. Thank you for listening and we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Future of Transportation podcast.